and welcome to another installment of the Good Life Revival Podcast, where we aim to discover how to better care for our minds, our bodies, our spirits, and our ecosystems. I am your friendly farmer philosopher podcast host, Samuel G. Sycamore, and I'm coming to you on a weirdly warm and windy evening in mid-February here in Paoli, Indiana. Today on the show, I could not possibly be more excited to share the conversation I recently had with the Katie Bowman, probably the only biomechanist and movement ecologist in the average person's radar, and someone who likely needs no introduction among my audience. I'm still kind of amazed that she was interested in talking to me at all, but for whatever reason, she was kind enough to offer me her time and expertise on the subject of nutritious movement, and I'm so stoked to share it with you here. But before we get to that, I've got some quick updates to address. I owe some serious thank yous to a couple friends of the Good Life Revival. One longtime listener and one extraordinarily generous new patron. Supporting my work through Patreon at patreon.com slash goodliferevival. Our buddy Mark G. has easily received the most number of shoutouts here for his loyal and loving support since the early days of the show, and he recently bumped his pledge up from $4 a month to 9 bucks, which is huge. So Mark, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. I really don't know if I can accurately convey how much your long-standing and continued support means to me. As for our new friend, a fellow by the name of Dave V. tossed in a whopping $18 into the pot and I just about flipped my lid when I saw that one come in I mean can it be true can it be real (laughs) apparently it is so thank you Dave that is massive I don't think I've ever mentioned on the podcast but uh, for anybody who's brave enough to pitch in at 18 bucks um, on the Patreon page I have solemnly sworn to send uh, over some of my favorite vegetable seeds in return which I will personally bless to ensure 100% germination. Please note that I cannot ensure 100% germination. Dave just happened to jump on this gravy train at the right moment in time because I am currently in the process of ordering seeds for our market garden this year, so he will be getting a sweet little sampling of our spring garden in the mail uh, just as soon as I finalize that order. (laughs) Speaking of perks, I've been brainstorming different ways to encourage people to pledge at different levels over on Patreon, and I think I got a juicy one to offer, so here goes. For anyone who pitches in at four bucks or more per month, you will gain almost instantaneous access to the interviews that I do. So for example, the other day when I did this interview with Katie, as soon as we hung up, I cleaned up the audio a little and uploaded it straight away to Patreon for supporters. And that's something I plan to do with all of my interviews going forward. So I think that's a pretty cool new perk in exchange for $4 a month. But of course, if you pledge at any amount, as little as $1, you will get access to my original podcast music archive, because yes, I created all of the music you hear on this show. And you'll also be able to listen to the extra book club podcast series that I'm running in 2018. As I mentioned last time around, February's pick, as you might have guessed by today's guest, (laughs) is none other than Move Your DNA by today's guest, Katie Bowman. (laughs) I think this is a super cool and super practical book that really deserves a spot on your shelf because you're going to want to return to it regularly. I told Katie about this ongoing book club project, and she was generous enough to offer a 20% discount for my listeners over her website. $20 
So stick around to the end of this episode uh, where I'll share the discount code that you can use. So anyway, if you want to listen to my soon-to-be-released extended commentary on Move Your DNA, I'm going to be banging that out this weekend, uh, hoping to get it to you at the beginning of the following week, if you're listening to this when it's fresh. Uh, If you want to hear that and uh, get access to all the stuff I was just talking about, (laughs) all it takes is a pledge of $1 or more through Patreon. Again, that's patreon.com slash goodliferevival. All right, enough with all that. Let's get on with today's topic. I got to be honest up front here. When I came upon the work of Katie Bowman for the first time, I have to admit, I was skeptical. Uh, for one, I had never heard of a biomechanist before. <laughs> and although I studied ecology in college, on the surface of it, I couldn't really make sense of Katie's use of the term movement ecology. Those misgivings were only compounded by the fact that if you were to judge Katie's books solely by their covers, like a real dummy would. <laughs> you might accidentally lump them in with the sort of fad diet and exercise books out there that tend to disappear just as quickly as they arrive. You know what I mean? I'm someone who's always been interested in health and fitness, and I've been burned more than a few times in the past by bad advice from so-called experts. So when it comes to these topics, I mostly just avoid the literature these days. But over the course of the last year making this show, several of you all listening have reached out to me to suggest Katie as a guest. In fact, she's been suggested more than anybody else, I'm pretty sure, which is interesting because I don't really get that many unsolicited suggestions, honestly. So I decided to give her work a fair shake, and I pretty much immediately fell in love. I devoured her essay collection called Movement Matters, and then I moved on to Move Your DNA. (laughs) which I found to be such an excellent read, equal parts science and philosophy with some really helpful recommendations for healthy and nutritious movements that you can easily squeeze into your busy daily life. Katie is a serious professional scientist with the rare gift of being especially talented when it comes to translating sometimes esoteric scientific jargon into clear, plain, and actionable English. Right, So she doesn't just tell you what the science says, but crucially, she will explain what you ought to do with it. If anyone understands the full extent to which the strange zoo we call civilization has warped and reshaped our bodies, it's Katie Bowman. Katie and I had a really fascinating and insightful conversation about some of the key themes of her work, like why it's so hard for us domesticated humans to do right by our bodies and how we can all incorporate more nutritious movement into our everyday lives, whether office-bound or out on the farm like yours truly. Before we proceed, I just want to apologize for the quality of the sound on my end through this interview. Um, Katie is clearly a pro who knows exactly what's up on her side, while I, on the other hand, am kind of just faking my way through this stuff and hoping for the best. So my audio turned out not so great this time around, but I can live with it, and I hope you can too. (laughs) And I hope you'll be patient with me as I continue to figure out how Skype works. Now maybe you understand why I only did in-person interviews for almost a year. Anyway, (laughs) let's get into it. (laughs) 
Katie Bowman. Welcome to the Good Life Revival Podcast. I am so excited about this. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, so just by way of introduction, um, could you briefly say a few words about uh, you know who you are, how people might know you, and uh, maybe uh, where you're calling from today? Well, I'm calling from the Olympic Peninsula on the west coast of uh, Washington, or in Washington, the west coast of the United States, um, where we are having a very rare 20 degree night followed by a 40 degree day, which is kind of exciting. It's allowed me to finally tap some sugar maples I found and see what happens. Yeah, for the first time. Um, I'm a biomechanist, which is uh, biomechanics is a is a field of study that studies um, Newtonian physics, essentially, um, as it as they affect living systems. And where I tend to put most of my time and attention professionally is humans. diseases, injury, and how they relate to human movement, the movements that we do, the movements that we don't do from a cross-cultural perspective, which is looking at how humans move now within particular cultures. Um, obviously, I'm a North American, so um, I'm, I'm quite embodied by that way of moving. Um, and then how it relates to other humans on the planet right now, specifically hunter-gatherers who are kind of like the other end point from our level of sedentarism. And then how that compares also to humans over the human timeline. So pulling up other types of things like bone robusticity, the shapes of bones, how how they've changed with um, kind of transitioning from hunter-gatherers to agricultural systems to industrial revolution. There's like these shifts. As we, sh- as we shift in our behavior, there's a shift in um, our morphology, the, sh- the, the size and shapes of our bones and as, as records of maybe the sizes and shapes of the softer tissues that used to connect and affect all of them. How much of that is, is actual evolutionary changes and how much of that is just adaptation. Meaning if you took the same genetic human being and put them into drastically different movement situations, even though they have the same genes, would they have um, different expression of those genes and so that's if you know me you probably know me just through reading a book or maybe hearing another podcast i tend to be in fields of you know do a lot of discussion in fields of um, movement science exercise science evolutionary biology ancestral health so i'm excited to talk to you about kind of the more permaculture audience because so much of what i talk about is actually movement permaculture and so that's that's I guess my perspective in a very large nutshell. I see. Yeah, I, I really dig your work, and it's so cool to have this opportunity to uh, speak with you here. Um, I I was especially moved, I guess you could say, <laughs> by uh, by your book "Move Your DNA." Um, and uh, when I when I first started reading that book, I wasn't really sure what to make of that title. Um, but then you you get into this idea of uh, of epigenetics, which is that you know. Uh, there's this whole environment, this ecology to our genetic makeup, and our our genes are really like this this living thing that that responds to to how we behave. You know, uh, the way you put it is is you are how you move, and uh, I, I just find that so. I mean, that's like a total paradigm shifter in, in thinking about health and nutrition, 
And uh, so I, I just say all of that to make sure we're all on the same page before I present this question, which is, uh, wh- what does our DNA want from us? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if your DNA wants any, you know, probably, and it's really hard to 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 parse it out, but I guess in general, your DNA wants to go on. <laughs> Fair DNA enough. To, right. Your DNA just wants to continue. And it is, um, you know, I, I think of this is where kind of considering humans and plants to be more similar than different or animals and plants to be more similar than the differences that are highlighted for classification systems. It's just to perpetuate. Mm. Um, we just have a different shape vessel for doing so than another plant. So if you go out to, you know, a tree and you're like, what does this tree's DNA want? It's like, well, it wants to go on. And there's an mm-hmm. environment in which uh, it can go on more easily than not. But that environment is sometimes, it's definitely, it's a malleable environment and it's mm-hmm. the temperature, it's, it's all the other plants that are around it. It's the soil it's every other living thing hence it's an ecology so i guess if we could recognize our own dna in an ecology that's very similar to what we now understand as plants and soil and it's just that the the primary difference between plants and animals is that animals have a greater capacity for movement than plants do Mm. and so so many of our perpetuation systems um as, and so health, we think of health as kind of like this separate thing, but health is essentially biological fitness is certainly just your ability to perpetuate your DNA well. And so with animals who are um, have the, a greater ability to move over a larger space, I mean, I don't also don't want to bias people like plants move a ton. There is mm. so much movement there. And so in the movement community, I spend a lot of time really trying to help people recognize that plants move. Maybe I'll shift gears now with people more deeply ingrained or entrenched in the plant perspective to say um, humans move a lot more than than maybe they're moving right now. That you're we're kind of biased towards a sedentary perspective. So we are the movement that we do, the capacity for movement that we have, and that is varying across humans. But um, certainly that capacity is usually not um, being challenged as much in this environment, the sedentary kind of convenient environment than in other peoples and other places of the planet. That capacity for movement, when you engage in it, in the end, makes you more robust for this end goal of kind of perpetuating your DNA. Whether you think of it as your DNA living a longer period of time, um, or you think of your DNA as living in future generations, you know, going forward, keeping in mind that um, in a biological perspective, you staying around longer can also help your offspring do better, you know, and then you're tending to grandchildren in general. It gets very, it gets an ecological perspective very quickly where your offspring is eventually, you know, helped by other generations serving as allo parents and that that is also part of a couple generations of your offspring doing well going forward. I see. Yeah, I I really appreciate that about about your work. How you connect it not just to like the the human ancestral physiology, but also you know the the biomechanics and the physiology of of plants and all the living things around us. You know, there's there's so much that that we have in common across species and across kingdoms even. And uh, yeah, I just think that's so cool. Um, 
You strike me as one of those rare scientists who is eager to question the established conventions in your field. And, you know, the results have just been so insightful. Was that something that you were naturally inclined to do? I mean, were you, have you always been skeptical of the conventional wisdom in your field? Or was there some uh, event or sequence of events that led you down that path? Well, hopefully, I mean, hopefully, I mean, anyone who's working within a scientific community is always hopefully challenging challenging either knowns or unknowns. I mean, mm. that is the process of science. I guess maybe what's different now is, you know, we live in the internet now. And so it's easy for someone, you know, like me to put out a bunch of content for people not in the field, right? So it sounds mm -hmm. like it's kind of flying in the face of many things. But, you know, when you look deeply at any science, you're going to find that there's rarely a consensus amongst um a scientific community like that that accepts everything full stop. Mm -hmm. Certainly there are assumptions that in order for a science to move on, everyone kind of has to hold them. And then but you but you understand that they're all malleable. I think that the scientific community probably understands that more so than the people now using scientific data. Uh. Because they right, like they're just going, oh, this is what it is. So they're understanding, I would say the general public's understanding of what science is is different than what people actually doing it think of it as. But that but that all being said, it is sometimes hard if you're going to um, posit questions to question the foundational assumptions that that are just, you know, been in the last 60 years of academics. Right. So um, the nice thing is, as far as movement goes, movement is actually a pretty brand new science, exercise science, movement science, kinesiology, whatever you want to call it as a college department, a university department is very young, maybe seventies. Uh, mm. Right. So, so it seems like, wow, you're really questioning this whole exercise thing. And it's like, yeah, it's brand new. It's brand, <laughs> new. It's brand new. And frankly, given um, thinking outside of like an exercise box, it's pretty clear that, that no other humans on the planet have really ever exercised, you know, with the exception of one particular group <laughs> In a, in a very recent time. So it's actually, I don't think a, it's a, it's not a radical thing that I'm doing per se. It's just, I would say, as far as marketing goes and the fact that within a particular culture, we have so much money writing on the industry of exercise. Maybe that's what makes it seem more radical. It's like, this is different than every other headline in a magazine I've mm -hmm. read, but that shouldn't like really confuse anyone to think of like, that's necessarily what the science is. That being said, most science is done on, um, you know, humans in this culture's universities who play sports. So, mm, right. so you know, the, the culture of a science is just really held by the culture of the people doing it. So the people asking the questions about movement are, for the most part, the movers in our culture, which are exercise or sports people. And so it just, it, it influences the way an entire field thinks of it because, you know, you get your training as you go to a university and you're like, here's all the data that we have, but all the data is from athletes, you know, who are male 18 to 35. And then you just begin to form a picture, a perception of this is what it is. So there's, I think maybe on the internet, 
I might be the first person so creating so much content to help people think otherwise. Mm. But I don't know if I'm the only person to ever, <laughs> to ever, to ever, um, I guess, officially put anything down about it. <laughs> I see what you mean. Yeah, it's that, that's an important distinction, you know, between what's actually going on within the scientific community versus what is clearly and effectively communicated and understood then by the general public. Sure. Um, and But so why do you think it's so hard for us modern humans to, to figure out what's best for our bodies? I mean, it seems like, I mean, granted, exercise science is fairly new, but it seems like we should have this stuff figured out, right? I mean, shouldn't it be pretty simple and straightforward? Why do we have this insatiable appetite for fad diets and, and trendy gadgets and gear? Oh, well, maybe that's just, I mean, if you've ever spent a lot of time around other monkeys, like all you have to do is put out a little bit of gear, <laughs> a little gadget or a gear, and it's completely transfixed. So our, Good point. Our, right, you know, like our, our constant distraction and transfixion might actually be an innate thing of a human that has just kind of pulled the humans to where they are right now. But I would, I would, I mean, I can speak to movement probably best, um, which is this, like, we do have kind of a very natural, like, living systems really do have this kind of natural tendency towards expending as little energy as possible. And so we mm. have just had a particular um, journey as a culture that has allowed more and more outsourcing of movement and also a simultaneous separation away from nature, which, you know, just to remind everyone, we define as everything in the universe except for humans, right? <laughs> we have definitions and practices that have separated us really from the ecology of, um, it's, I'll finish a sentence, of, <laughs> of, of, of wild or natural systems. That all mm. being said, of course, everything is nature, including this podcast and the house <laughs> around it. It's just, you know, this is my beaver dam. Like, look at this mega dam that we've been able to create. But we often have displaced consequences. And so the consequences of our tinkering oftentimes aren't right alongside. Like, you know, you punch someone, they punch you back. Or like mm. you step on something that's wobbly, you fall in the water. The consequences are so close next to the event that it's easy for you to maybe see more uh, cause and effect. But the farther removed you are from the consequences of kind of the way that you're moving through, then the longer that way persists because there's no, there's no natural... Um, uh, educating mechanism, right? Like you, you can't see. So I think that so many of the things that we're trying to figure out are, you know, we engaged in this experiment of separating ourselves out and, and trying to do many, many systems with ease. You know, we decided to put a bunch of people together instead of having them spread out. And then we, you know, brought water and, and then had other people make the food for the people who live in a place where the food couldn't be made. And then, so they had to clear a large space and then you put a bunch of stuff in like, so we're looking at a, ver a very short living experiment in many systems, and we're starting to go, oh, well, maybe this saved us a little bit of time, but it turned out that you can't only eat six foods. You had to eat 32 because simultaneously, <laughs> because of the freedom of all the time, because you didn't have to make your own food, you could start figuring out what's in food, mm -hmm. you know, and break that down as a science. So, like, there's definitely an ecology of knowledge and... um 
scientific knowledge and an ecology of more knowledge that comes from actually doing the things that you need. So, you know, people could be nourished before simply because they were engaged in a, a relationship with their landscape that had resulted in more people on that landscape. And then there's knowing how to be nourished because you're able to look at microscopes and put everything in. But at the end of the day, what we're seeing is, I guess, maybe less people nourished overall hmm. because because knowing what's in your food through a microscope doesn't automatically translate into into getting, you know? So like that's, right. that's where we are right now. So I think that we're constantly moving around because because this, you know, the science that people are looking at is in progress, in progress over years. So again, I, I use the nutritional um, analogy a lot. Like you can open up a book and get a list, a tidy list of all vitamins and minerals and um, macro and micronutrients. And I guess it seems like someone just whipped that out, like, because you don't know the history of the five or 600 years it took of many people doing many experiences and fighting about it and yes, <laughs> no, and, and, and the pendulum swinging back and forth on things like we are in the middle of still determining. We're not, we're not ever at end point and, you know, things like law and fact and like these are, these are terms that get put on things because we have to hand down education to other people. And so we're kind of saying, okay, well, this is the thing. And then you learn it, but you don't realize like, well, it's kind of the thing some of the time, you know, <laughs> it works a little bit differently, but, but you're only in class for eight hours. And so the whole entire universe has to be boiled down into bullets. And there's a lot less, uh, there's a lot left out. Most is what's left out when you're working with, you know, boiled down bullets. Right, right. Yeah. That's, um, f for me in, in, learning how to to move uh, how to use my body uh coming from a very sedentary culture um you know i i clung to exercise for so many years in search of that that nourishment you know i i was totally addicted to the gym and i i had to give up weightlifting a few years ago due to a chronic shoulder injury which in all honesty was probably caused by the weightlifting itself but even after I injured myself, I, I still would keep dragging my body back to the gym, you know, day after day to perform these very repetitive, limited movements that I, you know, I, I knew they weren't doing anything for me, but I, I just kept telling myself that, you know, this is what we do to be healthy. And I, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on, on why, why the gym is so alluring to us, even if we've even if we've been burned by it, do we just enjoy punishing ourselves? Well, I think that what a gym offers is, is maybe one of the only places in your life where you have permission to move. Uh, like, I don't think that we really understand how much movement is discouraged in almost every place that you go that, that from the time you went into school, there are many silent communications of, be still that movement is bad um where people will look frown and look at you you know like your transportation you can't move and so i think that there's a certain freedom that especially those who have maybe really tapped into how movement makes them feel better than being sedentary i do think it's a process to learn for your body you have to expose your body to both those things for you to go 
wow, I never really realized how I had freedom for maybe these other things I felt once I moved. So then you start to crave that place, that one place where you putting your arms over mm. your head or grunting while you lift things isn't right. seemed like, like bad behavior. And so <laughs> we go there, we go there because this is the space that allows us the full expression of these innate parts of ourselves. It's just that the shape and, and, and everything that you do there is making you good, better feel. I mean, feel, feel those ways. Yeah. And, and at the same time though, because the things that are the shapes of the things that are in the gym reflect, reflect the extent to which data on movement has been gathered. So, so much mm. of what we do is like from the 1960s, like it's, it was from like the first three months of movement science, <laughs> you know, as what got put in to yeah. set the shape of the gym. And so we're like, wow, I can move all my parts. And, and what, what we don't recognize because we are so sedentary is you're moving this tremendous number of parts in these re like the tiniest, most narrow ways that you could move them at very high loads. And so you're trying to get all of your body parts to feel good by moving only a few of them. And so, so much of what move your DNA is about is like, well, there's actually way that, that your that gym, that you, what you can get in the gym is available for you all over this planet. Um, mm. And that you can, you can start, I mean, and you can do this in the gym. Like there's no, no reason you have to leave this place that where the, the freedom of movement is so easy <laughs> for you. It's just that what you've been doing while you're there might could change if you want to diversify or not to have such a, to not have such of a monoculture of movement i guess to translate well right it's a monoculture yeah it is when you go into the gym it's very similar and and do what's traditionally in there what people traditionally do um you know tradition if, if a tradition can be after 30 years um <laughs> that it that it's like a, it's like like big agriculture it's taking out the few of the easiest things that that almost everyone can access and only giving you those so you do those at high volume it's like corn it's soy you know it's <laughs> it's just those those few things and you right. go in and you're like i feel so good it's like of course you were starving if you ate any <laughs> of those things you would feel wonderful exactly but at the same time if you only ate those things you're going to slowly notice some part of you not being well even though without them you feel like crap you add them, you feel better, and you also feel a little bit like crap at the same time. So there's just, it's just that, but it's movement, not food. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Speaking of recent and questionable traditions, you are somebody who argues in favor of ditching our shoes, ditching the desk chair, um, ditching the pillow and mattress, among other things, and... I think those of us who recognize that we are actually suffering as a result of these these quote-unquote comforts, we would love a good reason to, to toss them all out right away, but you discourage people from diving in too quickly and instead suggest a period of gradual transition. So I'm wondering, why do you think that's necessary, and, and what kinds of things can people do to make those transitions go more smoothly? Well, and I guess to be clear, because if you heard that, you might be like, so we're supposed to be barefoot and not have, <laughs> and like sleep on the floor so, and, and like and stand around all the time. So right. to be clear, it's to transition from a overstructured, stiff shoe that limits the mobility of your foot while you move. So there mm. are many more shoes that still provide you with 
some sort of comfort to function in your life right. whilst while allowing those 33 joints in each foot and 25% of the musculature that's of your entire body to finally get a chance to move. Mm. So you don't have to go barefoot. Um, <laughs> although I do, although I would say that going barefoot, a portion of a day or a week or a month or a life is, is going to be necessary to get like the full nutrients available from moving. Mm. Um, it's not just give up a mattress. It's like, look at what are we sleeping on? We call it a mattress, but if you go and look, I mean, you've got like a foot and a half to two feet of fluff <laughs> underneath your body that right now for your body to be comfortable, you have to sit on all of that and whatever right. the source of that is and whatever's in that, that, that what we just culturally, we just have the things that we have. We don't really question them. So maybe, yes, it is in my nature to question the status quo. It's like, why did, when did it become a requirement for our human bodies to have to sit on two feet of fluff to tolerate <laughs> itself. Like when did we become desensitized to pressure? When did right. we become unable for our joints to move into these positions that again, throughout a human timeline, you would have seen in every person. And mm. yet, you know, at like two years old, you're like, here's your bed here. This is your, this is your birthright, this bed of cushions <laughs> so that you can go on. So it's to really look at, Oh, I, and you know, so many people are working on the curbs of their necks and the tensions, the necks and the shoulders. And yet they've had essentially an orthotic behind their head in a pillow form, mm. three to six inches every night that they've slept. So it's really to just call out these things that we put our bodies in or put on our bodies every single day without question and to maybe relate them back to your physical experience, right? Because we don't think about, you don't think about getting in your bed is how you move, but it is. It is a lack of pressure now. It's one repetitive position for eight hours and it's all the softness that allows your body to tolerate that. And then in the morning you wake up and you know, you're stiff and you don't feel good. And if you ever want to go camping or sleep in someone else's house, now you've got a headache all day or a neck pain <laughs> because, because you're unable, like you have no diversity. You, you can't adapt your body to anything because it moves so little outside of what you've exposed it to. So it's really just a call for exposing your body to more movement. You wear a softer, more flexible shoe. You can, your foot gets more shape as it moves over the ground. The transitioning part is if you, you want to look at all the features of the shoe and consider that geometry and then go, okay, so I need to do some exercises for my feet. And then maybe if I've always worn a really stiff shoe to, to not go to like something completely minimal, but something that has just a little bit more malleability over time, mm. because to your feet to go 35 years or 45 years of basically being in a cast, <laughs> to flinging off that calf and then going for a run or going for a walk or lifting heavy, heavy loads. Now your muscles can't tolerate that. So everything is like right. running a marathon or, or working up to lifting a really heavy weight. You do it in stages, in small stages, you allow your body to adapt because the tissue has to build, has to grow. It has to become stronger to tolerate those loads where you don't have an injury along the way. So that goes for shoes. It goes for beds. You know, I, I had headaches for years um, and, and like a neck that would go out a lot. And then finally I'm like looking at the exercises that I 
was doing for therapy for it. And I was like, these are the moves that my neck would do if I just didn't have this pillow all night long. Like I was training for <laughs> stiffness all night, training for stiffness for eight hours, and then trying to feel better doing 10 minutes of exercise a day. It's like right. those 10 minutes cannot offset that. So I just slowly transitioned the height of my pillow. It took me like 18 months. You know, I probably could have done it a lot faster if I wasn't doing other things. But you just slowly allow your your neck to move and your shoulders and your shoulder blades and your spine to move more during the night. And it's not mm. like you're working out at night. It's just that <laughs> it's just that you're not holding one position over and over again. And and to the point where I don't to the point where I can just sleep on a hardwood floor right now. Like I, I have that adaptability. I'm actually on the other end where sleeping in a cushioned bed now makes me um, like I can't tolerate it. Like that pressure for eight for eight hours of very little sensation that now makes me um, feel not great the next day. So I'll often just sleep on the floor. You know, if I'm at someone else's house, um, maybe I need to add more fluff to my training program. I don't know, but yeah. So it's transitioning. It's thinking of this is exactly the same as exercising and adapting. It's just that you don't think about how you sleep as exercise. So you don't think to put those scientific principles on this other non-exercise movement event, but movement it still is. Right. Yeah, I, I see what you mean. Um, and that gets me thinking about, so uh, my wife and I, um, and many of our listeners, I believe, uh, are farmers by day, uh, which thankfully means that we're able to avoid many of the uh, troubles that plague our office-bound peers. But, uh, you know, people, people see farming and gardening work as, as containing more nutritious movement. And there's some truth to that, of course, but it does come with its own kinds of repetitive sort of junk food movements that, that aren't always nourishing to the body. Um, so with that in mind, do you have any advice for balancing out that kind of daily repetitive stress that we are liable to face in the garden? Sure. So like there, there's, sedentary, you know, and then there's active and so many people who are doing farm work fit into that category. Um, that being said, it's still surrounded oftentimes by repetitive sedentary positioning. So mm. for those who are using their body quite a day, and there's a, there's a lot of different, I mean, I grew up in an, I grew up on a farm surrounded by farms. So I'm quite familiar with all day labor. <laughs> it's just, it usually tends to be, um, very repetitive in nature, right? Like if you are picking, if I'm going to pick strawberries in an industrial setting, I'm in one single position for eight hours. So right. yes, I am active, but if I looked at diversity, it's a monocrop. I mean, it's literally, it's a, <laughs> it's a monocrop of food. It's a monocrop of movement because my role in that system is a single one. I am only picking at this point. And so in that case, it would be to figure out how to do the move that you do most often how to change your body position while you're doing it so that it isn't actually the same move. So mm. that's kind of where that ergonomic training comes in. Like, okay, well, you're bending over to pick, pick, pick. You need to do a row squatting or a portion of the row squatting. Or uh. instead of bending over and hinging at one area of your back, you're going to learn how to hinge at the hips, which, which the activity of picking is the same, the muscles doing it change. So it's to diversify your physical form during that repetitive task so that mm. it is or your body not a repetitive task even though the gathering of the strawberries is repetitious um 
It's also to look at, I mean, this is kind of where it's interesting and it's hard. So much of the movement diversity comes in a hunter gathering context. So, so much of farming is, is really about reducing labor or reducing movement. You know, farming right. is that reduction from hunter gathering because you weren't going to, you're not going to move your body over space or over land, I guess. Um, you are going to try to put everything in your land, which is what you would get by moving. And so there are these, there's a natural diversity that happens both in movement and in nutrition, uh, you know, dietary nutrition that comes from you moving over the landscape. Well, we don't have that right now. So we're going to um, look at and even tools, like one tool is a way of taking a task that would normally use your arms in a lot of different ways. and making it so one small motion can get the same thing done. So diversifying your tools for the same job, mm. um, it might slow you down sometimes um, to have to be switching up tools, but it only slows it down if you're looking at your time doing your work. If you think about, well, I still have to go to the gym to train my other arm or the work <laughs> or, or how that shoulder injury eventually slows you down right. or puts you out, that in the larger context, what seems to be taking more time doing your job as a farmer um, is really just adding to your work of tending to yourself health-wise or injuries or whatnot. So because we parse our life into like, now I'm working, <laughs> now I'm on a date, with, you know, I'm building a relationship, now mm -hmm. I'm parenting, now I'm having fun. Like the more you can stack those, then the more you can see that saving time in one doesn't necessarily save time in another, that you're always looking for a more ecological approach to meeting all of your needs. I see. Yeah, that, that makes me think about, um, well, something I've been considering a lot. We're planning for the, our, our spring garden, and uh, you know things are just beginning to thaw out uh, here in southern Indiana. And um, so... One thing I, I've been thinking about is is just how much our work changes with the seasons, and so the the loads that we place on our body uh, also change quite a bit with the seasons. And I'm I'm curious if your recommendations for different kinds of nutritious movement also have some kind of seasonality to them. You know, like is there something I should be especially thinking about in the winter time that I shouldn't really worry about in the summer, or you know, along those lines. Absolutely. I mean, if we're going to talk about quantifying natural human movement, mm -hmm. you're going to see that just like food, natural movements always relate back to uh, the landscape. So even even when we talk about like what historical humans do, there were people who were closer to water, who developed paddling strengths and movements that that reflected mountains here. Uh, desert here, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so everyone has, there, there, there is a diversity of movement over this thing that we call natural human, natural human movement, just based on where you are geographically. And then of course, within a, within a year, the cycling of seasons is going to affect what movements you do or do not. I mean, just look at daylight, right? Like, so just as plant movement changes and the needs of a plant's nutrition changes based on what stage it's at it's the same for humans so so you can i don't know if i could say like okay so make sure you're carrying stuff in the winter but not <laughs> in the summer it has probably more to do with frequency mm. um you know the fact that we have a need for rest i don't i think that it's, it's hard to sometimes have a discussion about the need for movement 
and um, our need to not be sedentary, but simultaneously a need for rest. Yeah. It's just that there are so many more ways to take rest. Like one simple way is like, we need rest and you definitely need rest after a day of laboring. <laughs> However, your rest has the same geometrical configuration. It's you flopped in this one chair, <laughs> eyes on a screen right here or whatever it is. It's the same. Mm. So one way to diversify your movement, even in a farming context, is when it's time to rest, that you come down to the floor and sit in a different position, you know, or cycle through different positions. You're still resting, but you're moving differently while you rest, which has the same adaptation adaptive pressures as exercising, right? Like you go to a stretching class or a physio or a yoga class and you are sitting on the ground with your hips in a particular way. You call it an exercise when you're in the gym that has the freedom to move, but you wouldn't think of doing it on the floor that it would count that instead of flopping in your chair <laughs> to rest your achy bones, you could sit on the floor and not only rest your achy bones, but also give your muscles a stretch that would better prime you for tomorrow's work. I see. So it's the ecology of it again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So in in um, in your book, movement matters, but really throughout all of your work, um, you you really pick apart this the sedentary lifestyle from a pretty unique angle. Um, I guess it's in it's in the book, movement matters, where you're talking about how when we aren't investing serious movement into the things that we do from day to day. That means that that someone or something, which is probably a machine, right? Something is performing that movement on our behalf. And so, when I'm not harvesting my own vegetables uh, and instead buying them from the supermarket, you know, I'm relying on this incredibly complex system that employs slave labor and these massive chemical inputs, all this insane machinery, and you know, that's to say nothing of the fossil fuels. It's it's just such an insane system that is all built so that I don't have to move. And so when we view it from this angle, do you see nutritious movement as, as a, a moral or ethical responsibility? I don't know if I could say that there is a code of morals or ethics for every single person. I mean, I would certainly say for me personally, in the way that I define how, what, what I need to do to be kind of in alignment with my own value system, that for me, yes, it is a motivator. I don't know if it's because it's moral or ethics as much as I've defined for myself in the system that, you know, is defining my perception and my behavior as I don't define myself as someone contributing to these problems. Like mm -hmm. I define myself as someone trying to work away from these problems. Yeah. And so that cognitive dissonance is is helpful for me to go, oh, okay. Like I can see myself um, contributing to an issue. Like the whole reason I outline that is because I don't think that human movement, because of our lack of perceiving just how sedentary we are, unprecedentedly sedentary mm -hmm. from any other humans at any other time. And again, it's not, human modern humans it's this particular culture probably listening to this podcast that i'm speaking of like to really it's it's so easy to say carbon footprint it's really not sometimes it's more work to kind of look at hook up to go oh like i i don't walk that mile to to look at the tenant to look at the tendency to buy a car that uses less fuel versus just walk more 
Mm. because the perception is, well, I don't have time to go there. I couldn't possibly <laughs> walk there, right? To really recognize that we have these innate move less systems in our body. And I think that includes how we think through problems, that we think through them from a sedentary perspective. And then also to recognize, you know, I do a lot of long distance, 20 to 40 mile walking over the landscape just to be able to not have to have a theory about how walkable things are to go. <laughs> yep. It's actually, I'm not able to walk here. I, it's not legal for me to walk here because of certain, um, like I had to have to cross someone else's property and someone has denied me access to uh. be able to live here or because of we've prioritized cars and signed up for, well, obviously I have to be able to drive here <laughs> that, that it's, that it's actually pushed out those abilities to walk. So like I did one big walk over this area on a trail and I was hanging off the side of the freeway where the cars were going by 60 <laughs> miles. I had to quote walk hanging on the side with my arms and oh, walk a, quarter of a mile or either that or get hit by a car. And I was like, this, this is the walking situation. And of course the highways are really just paved through ways that were once the walking trails that were once the animal, the non-human animal trails, right? right. That that's, we've always followed these trails that have been carved. And once you have a path of least resistance, like you cement it <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then no one has to add any resistance ever again. And then, and then now that you just keep, we just keep adding the technology of the car. So we're definitely, we're definitely in a particular relationship with technology. Um, and so I do just think, like to go back to your question, like, is it moral or ethical? I just think that it is what it is. There's a particular outcome that's going to come from a particular behavior, whether it's good or bad. I don't even think we have to judge it. It's just more like, this is the path to this and more movement can shape it to this, but more movement has to be a necessary element to not have the ine inevitable, you know, pavement or technological solution to everything that most many have the capacity for increasing as far as their movement goes. So I don't know, a moral, it's just like, we're kind of in a judgment time where we have to behave good versus bad. In the end, it's just like, choose your own adventure, <laughs> but, but you want the details of which, of which adventure leads to what. And so I didn't want to be operating. I, I, I wanted as much information about like, what is the actual cost of my sedentarism? And then when I saw it, I was like, oh, okay, well then I'd like to, I'd like to vote with my moves, maybe, mm. if you will, to shape <laughs> here. Right on. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that pragmatic perspective. Um, but, hey, I, I want to be mindful of your time. I, I know you've got a hard out here momentarily. But before we, uh, before we end it here, i got to ask you, I pose this to everyone who comes on the show, how do you define the good life? Oh, the good life. <laughs> how, what my good life? Um. I guess it's just what we were talking about. Every, you know, everyone gets to define, you know, who, who they are. Um, for me, the good life for me is when I am acting in accordance with who I am, with mm. who on paper I've noted I want to be. And when <laughs> there's as few behaviors falling outside of that, that's when I feel like I'm in my, I'm in my good life zone. Right on. I love that. Well, hey, uh, before we go, um, where can people find you if they if they want to hear more from you? Nutritiousmovement.com. 
Um, if you like podcasts, I have a podcast, which you can get to from my website. If you like social media, like Instagram, if you, if you just love a bunch of picture examples of, <laughs> of, of me, you know, of what, of how to stack your life and how to put more non-exercise movement into your life. That's a good visual example. And then there's just, there's eight books, there's 300 blogs, there's like, <laughs> there's, it's 10 years of information. So go crazy, but nutritiousmovement.com is where you're going to head. Awesome. Well, I would be sure to link to all the above in today's show notes. Um, but uh, yeah, Katie, thank you so much. This is this has been such a pleasure. I can't wait to share this with the audience. Thanks, Sam. <laughs> all right. Well, take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. And that was my conversation with Katie Bowman. If you want to join in on my monthly book club and pick up a copy of Katie's book, Move Your DNA, you can use my discount code PERMABOOK for 20% off when you're checking out at her website, which is nutritiousmovement.com. Of all the insight that Katie shared with me here, I think what's stuck with me most in the days since is her idea of exercise and repetitive motion as analogous to a conventional monocrop. I just found that to be such a, a rich and poignant comparison. I read a really fascinating essay a few months back, and I'm not sure I could track it down at this point, unfortunately. Um, it might have come from one of you all, so maybe uh, you'll know what I'm talking about when I start describing it. But um, it, it was describing the ways that our human conscious capacity for metaphor seems to arise through our observations of nature. So like an obvious example would be something like, Hey, have you met my brother? He's the guy out in the field out there who's as tall as a tree. All of our abstract thought, which can sometimes feel like a kind of divine creation that occurs within our minds, right? In fact, all of it is contained in the environment around us. The ecosystem dictates the language and the thought patterns that we employ to communicate our observations and predictions. And also, crucially, as Katie so eloquently explains, our environment dictates our movement patterns and the loads that are placed on our bodies as we move through it. Whether yours is the paved environment favored by the dominant culture of no place, or perhaps a more rural locale like my own, regardless of where you find yourself, the physical space that you move through is, at all times, sending you signals about how and when and to what extent you should be moving. The impetus then is on you, the individual, to receive those signals and respond with the maximum amount of diverse, nutritious movement that you can manage throughout your day. Don't let your movement patterns turn into a monocrop of limited range and function, leading to repetitive stress and degradation through overuse in unnatural ways. I've been there. Pay attention to how you cultivate your movement environment on a daily basis and look for ways you can incorporate native diversity that's unique to your bioregion and microclimate and appropriate for the season. Give your body the same kind of diversity and abundance of movement that we regenerative-minded people aim to restore on the landscapes around us. Your diverse and abundant movement will lead to diverse and abundant outcomes, both for you and the space that you inhabit. Treat your body like the resilient and multifaceted ecosystem that it is. A microcosm of the planet itself, 
and then you will be far better equipped to steer the course of your local landscape in that same direction. I hope this conversation inspires you to get creative about the ways you can diversify your movement throughout the day. If you dig my podcast, then I'm sure you would enjoy Katie's show if it's not already on your radar for some reason. It, it really is an excellent and thorough resource uh, beyond the book Move Your DNA. Um, so if you're looking for more fuel to spark your imagination, I would definitely recommend checking that out. Um, I think it used to be called Katie Says, but now I believe it's also called Move Your DNA. Um, you can find it easy enough by searching her name uh, on your podcast player of choice. But in any case, I will do the Googling for you. And like I said, I'll provide links to all of Katie's various media around the web in today's show notes, which you can find at thegoodliferevival.com slash podcast slash 33. And hey, thank you so much for listening to this installment of the Good Life Revival podcast. If you enjoy my work and you'd like to show your support, I hope you will consider making a pledge through Patreon at patreon.com slash thegoodliferevival. We are just a few dollars away from our current goal of 100 bucks per month. I can hardly believe that. But I've got something really cool and fun in the works to give away to our patrons when we get there. But hey, don't sweat if you don't have any cash to toss my digital tip jar. I get it. No hard feelings. Please consider this podcast my gift to you. If you've got a minute to spare, you could leave a review and rating of this show through your podcast player. I swear, it really does make it easier for other folks like you to stumble upon my work if you do that. I've got quite a large and growing list now of unique individuals, both known and fairly unknown, who I'm planning to interview in the coming weeks and months, so stay tuned for plenty more stories, wisdom, and perspectives that I encountered in my endless quest to better understand this nebulous creature that we call the good life. Until next time, this is your friend Sam Sycamore reminding you that a world of abundance is waiting right outside your door. Are you ready to step out?